Welcome to the Rosenberg Roundup, a weekly podcast providing investors with key macro and market developments, insightful data analysis, and actionable ideas that are top of mind for the Rosenberg research team in the week ahead. I'm Dylan Smith, and this is the Rosenberg Roundup. Later in today's show, we'll be interviewing our VP of Strategy, Maurice Youngstra, to get his views on the major asset classes. And in today's spotlight, it's the Fed's average inflation targeting framework, which will be familiar to those of you who can remember the times before the 2020s. But it's time to come back into focus, and so we'll address that issue. But first, the week in review. It was a light week in data, with the biggest U.S. releases being the Senior Loan Officer Opinion Survey, which we like to call the SLUS, and the NY Fed's Household Debt and Credit Report. These are important but often overlooked insights on the credit side of the economy. And remember that ultimately credit drives the business cycle. Together, these two data points this month painted a picture of sky-high credit demand, despite high interest rates. Banks are tightening policy and increasing provisions as the lending base looks increasingly overextended. That's the general picture being painted. It's this rising leverage that's taking over from the fading tailwinds of fiscal stimulus and pandemic-era excess savings to keep activity levels and employment up and compensating for tight monetary policy stance and indeed extending the timeline for easing. But as real debt continues to rise, delinquencies are piling up too. Delinquencies are a slow-moving series, and so there hasn't been much concern as, you know, for the last year or so, delinquencies have been quite low. But once they start moving up, they tend to keep going until the cycle ends. And they're on the up at the moment, with credit cards and auto delinquencies now at levels not seen since 2011. And that was when they were coming off the massive peak during the global financial crisis. So we are getting to levels that generally signal a high degree of concern. By definition, leveraged activity, leveraged GDP, or keeping, keeping growth going by borrowing is unsustainable. And the longer it's allowed to pile up, the more risk builds into the outlook. That wraps up the week in review, but next week we're going to have a, a pretty big week in terms of data releases. We have US January CPI that will headline the week, followed by retail sales later on. With the March cut from the Fed now priced out, These data are mostly going to inform markets' views on whether they will start the cutting cycle in May versus June. So some important data coming out. We'll also get PPI, we'll get consumer expectations, and we'll get some of the early Fed surveys, and also keep an eye out for earnings as the season continues. We've put out a ton of interesting pieces for our subscribers. Just today, a colleague and I published a detailed piece breaking out spending patterns by income band, looking at who exactly it is that drives spending on different categories of the consumer segment, who drives the cycle of consumer spending, and ultimately how that shapes the outlook. Spoiler, inequality matters a lot. Uh, My colleague, Bhavana, who we interviewed last week, has put out a great piece looking into growth expectations priced into the Magnificent Seven. And she's found that not all Magnificent Sevens are alike. In fact, there's important differences between them and between some of those stocks in the rest of the index that deserve a lot more careful thought than markets appear to be giving them right now. And one of the big themes tying our research together at the moment is our investigation of the puzzles and dichotomies that have emerged within and between different data sets. We're going to touch on this a lot in future pods as our data snooping throws up more and more interesting insights. But in the spotlight today, we'll focus on a question we've been starting to get from investors recently, 
relating to the Fed's average inflation targeting framework. As we approach the cutting phase of the cycle, this is coming into focus. Clients want to know if average inflation targeting means that the Fed will purposefully aim to undershoot the 2% inflation target for a period of time, which would, of course would require them to hold policy tighter than they otherwise would uh, for longer. It's an important question, but to answer it, it's also important to understand where the average inflation targeting framework came from. It arose after that long period between the global financial crisis and COVID, which we call the stagflation phrase, when expectations were stuck below 2% and the Fed was struggling to get inflation up to target rather than down to target. So they reviewed their framework and announced in 2020 that they would incorporate a commitment to overshooting inflation for a time if there has been a period of, of undershoot. That's in order to make sure that people anchor their expectations above the 2% target or close to the 2% target at times when they're struggling to keep it up there. Now, they announced that in mid-2020 or so, just as inflation was about to go on a massive surge and that effort was about to become redundant. So inflation shot up and we moved into tightening and fighting inflation mode rather than trying to reset expectations higher. Although the framework probably was responsible for the Fed moving a little later than it otherwise would have. It makes sense to ask the question if the target applies in reverse, and it would also bring a benefit for consumers if after a period of elevated inflation, we had a sustained period of lower inflation so that prices kind of go to where they would have if we had just the average 2%. But the way the Fed's written the framework, it's completely asymmetrical. It says absolutely nothing about undershoots and about what happens when inflation is coming down. Powell has not talked much about the framework and his outlook, but he has consistently said that the main target of the Fed is to get inflation sustainably to 2%, nothing about undershooting. And if anything, the framework means that if the Fed does start to undershoot, well, then it's committed to making sure that it doesn't undershoot for too long so that expectations can't fall below the 2%, and we might be in another world again where we're trying to get them up again. So if anything, the framework implies that undershoots will be smaller and less long than they would otherwise be without the framework, not that the Fed has to commit to a long undershoot. So we're not worried about over-tightening because of the framework. If there's an over-tightening, it will come because the Fed has misread the real-time data flow. And that's a much more proximate risk. For today's interview, I'm pleased to finally welcome my friend and colleague, Marius Youngstra, to the pod. In addition to being the most tenured member of the firm and a reliable Dave Whisperer, Marius is our VP of Market Strategy. Among his many responsibilities, Marius owns and lovingly maintains our flagship Strategizer report, which anchors many of our key market calls. Marius, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Let's start at the beginning. Strategizer is our marquee tool for supporting client asset allocation. Would you remind us exactly what it is and how it works? Of course. Uh, Strategizer is our comprehensive asset allocation tool. It takes a quantitative-based approach to determining the risk-reward outlook on a number of geographies and asset classes that we track. In short, we update our models at the end of each month and spit out a score. Score ranges from 0 to 100. The higher the number, the more positive we are in the outlook, and vice versa. We've been talking a lot in the first few episodes of the pod about how investors can think about positioning with stocks in a big bull run, repeatedly breaking new highs, but the economic backdrop just not looking as robust as the market would suggest. How would Strategizer help them kind of interpret that setup? Strategizer is definitely in agreement with that sentiment. Um, you know, the stock market's not the economy, but we look at more than just how economic growth is. 
Uh, it definitely is pushing back against the idea that stocks are in some sort of new bull market. But our models are definitely in agreement that the fundamental underpinnings are not as robust as many claim. Earnings revisions have been negative, and liquidity is actually set to work against investors, for example. But there's also a huge behavioral component to trying to call a new bull market. They tend to be born out of extreme pessimism when investors think things will only get worse. This is not the case today. Everywhere we look, there are signs of extreme optimism, even borderline euphoria, from the technical backdrop to valuations to sentiment, etc. So what's the model actually recommending on equities? Yeah, so going back to my previous answer, it's not surprising then to hear that our outlook on U.S. equities is still quite downbeat, with a model score of just 3.8 as of the end of January. This means that in strategizers' view, the outlook is just about as poor as it can possibly be based on our scale of 0 to 100. Internationally, we have a much more neutral view on Canada, Europe, and Japan. Valuations are certainly not as stretched as they are in the U.S., but by no means are they dirt cheap. And positioning and sentiment indicators are elevated, but not stretched. If you want to be in equities, then our best signal is actually coming out of Asia x Japan. China's issues have loomed large over the region, and the MSCI Asia x Japan index has certainly been hit hard as a result. But China is only 30% approximately of that index, and the x China component is holding in quite well. Countries like Korea, India, Taiwan, etc. Fundamentals here are much better with expected earnings growth nearly triple what the consensus is expecting for China. So while investors are correct in reducing China exposure, we think that prices have declined to a point where A, a lot of bad news is, in, is already discounted, and B, investors can get exposure at these cheaper prices to the other winners in the region. Yeah, it's definitely making a lot of sense at the moment to treat China as separate from the rest of Asia for investors right now. don't think that will go anywhere anytime soon. Uh, Marius, last question for you. I know that Strategizer covers a lot of other asset classes aside from just equities. It sort of covers the gamut. So any other nuggets for our listeners? Yeah. If we look back to our February publication, Strategizer is saying that if you want to be invested in U.S. equities, you know, beyond the index level, where we, we certainly take a more pessimistic approach, then you want to look to the rate sensitive or the defensive sectors beneath the surface. So think healthcare, utilities, communication services, and financials. Those sort of screen at the top of our list. We're also noting a defensive shift at the margin in our fixed income models with an increasing score to our treasury component, while corporate credit actually heads the opposite direction, declined to touch. But the most interesting development, however, was probably in our commodity model, which jumped up all the way to a score of 85. If you want to look for any asset class, that has fully priced in a recession, then commodity markets top that list. There we go. You already indicated. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for joining us, Marius. Thank you. And for our listeners, that's only a tiny sliver of the insight that Strategizer delivers on a monthly basis. Head over to the show description to see more from the report. As always, we close by paddling our little podcast canoe over to Canada Corner. This week, we're highlighting data showing a massive pickup in transactions in the Toronto housing market and as all Canadians know, Toronto is basically Canada, so that probably applies countrywide. Transactions were up 9.6% in January compared to December, and that comes after they rose almost 20% in December. So that's a big increase in housing transaction volumes. And the Bank of Canada will like the reason for that. It's because supply is coming onto the market, as sellers throw in the towel on another leg up in prices. 
all those transactions came at a 1.5% drop in prices. So essentially what's happening is that those holding onto their homes and not putting them on the market are giving up either because they think prices are going to stay low or keep dropping, or because they're struggling to finance their mortgages as their flexible mortgages roll over at very high interest rates. Given that Canadians are now waiting on the residential real estate complex to cool off in order to deliver that last leg of disinflation that the BOC is looking for, this is good news all around. And on that note, it's time to wrap. I'm Dylan Smith, and that was the Rosenberg Roundup. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Rosenberg Roundup. For more information on our work and to take advantage of a free 30-day trial of our research, please visit rosenbergresearch.com. Make sure to tune in to our next episode for more insightful analysis on the macro and market landscape. Rosenberg Roundup is provided for general information and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute legal or professional advice, nor is it an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to purchase any security or derivative. Any views expressed by the participants of Rosenberg Roundup are solely their own and do not necessarily reflect the views, opinions, beliefs, or policies of Rosenberg Research. 